Our scripture this reading is from uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be uh, reading together verses 1 through 11. 1 Peter 4 verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they'll have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. A few years ago, a resident at a skilled nursing facility died. The ambulance was called, and the driver came and picked up the elder woman to take her to the hospital morgue. Except the driver carried off the wrong woman. He didn't check her identification, so he wheeled away an 87-year-old resident who was soundly sleeping. The hospital morgue staff knew something was amiss when they saw the woman move. Imagine the surprise and panic of the staff at the skilled nursing home to see the deceased still in her room and her living roommate gone. In the Christian community, it's a horrible thing for those who are supposed to be alive to be mistaken for the dead. Peter wants us to see that Jesus makes a spiritually seismic difference in our lives. Christ followers are to live according to God in regard to the Spirit. A radical change has taken place. If we believe in Jesus, we are dead to sin. Christ's suffering and death brought about a fundamental change. Peter says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. On the cross, Jesus did battle with the forces of evil. He prevailed. Jesus was victorious over sin. Jesus is done with sin. And Jesus' followers are done with sin. Arm yourselves with the same attitude, writes Peter, or as the message puts it, since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Learn to look at your life as a person who is dead to sin. I mean, it's a big challenge. 
Too often, it doesn't look like we're dead to sin. Uh, Too often, we carry around the baggage of sin that weighs us down. I know my failings. I carry around a sin baggage. I've got a, a backpack full of pride and gossip and willfulness that I lug around. And I suspect that most of you carry around this excess baggage of sin as well. We want our own ways. We want to plant the flag of our own kingdom. Each of us knows our sin baggage. Sinful habits stick to us. And we can carry around our sins like Jesus accomplished nothing. There's a great image in the last chapter of Micah. The prophet lauds God for being like nobody or nobody else. Who's a God like you who pardons sin? Asks Micah. He notes that God doesn't stay angry, that God delights to show mercy. And then Micah brings up this amazing image. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. God removes our sin and hurls them overboard. They sink to the bottom of the deepest oceans. Corey Ten Boom, a Dutch Christian saint from the last century, used to say, and then God put up a sign saying, no fishing allowed. She knew that we tend to drag up our old sins. She knew we like nothing better than to dredge the ocean's depths to recapture this vague sense of guilt. But God has, cho- has caused this radical change. We're forgiven. The burden of guilt has been tossed overboard. By God's grace, we are cut loose from sin. Our baggage is removed. We are dead to sin. Done with sin. It's not the dominant force in the life of believers. Peter says, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. He means, you've frittered away enough of your life pursuing trivial matters. You've done things which you didn't need to do and didn't even particularly want to do, but you drifted there because you didn't have anything better to do. But now, he says, alive to a new way of life in Christ, you live that way. Even though others may ridicule you, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. See, Peter wants us to see that the suffering abuse because of our imitation of Christ is proof that we're done with sin. He was talking to a community that had suffered enough for their living for Christ. And so their suffering was proof that they're alive to this way of Christ. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin, says Peter. He doesn't mean that we no longer sin. He just means that suffering for the sake of Christ is proof that we are not captive to sin. Anita and I had the chance to watch uh, Just Mercy this past week. It's the story of Brian Stevenson, a Harvard lawyer who starts the Equal Justice Initiative. They work to educate and seek reform in the areas of criminal and racial injustice. One of Brian Stevenson's earliest cases involved a, a wrongly convicted black man who sat on death row. And when Brian went to visit the prison, the guard required Brian to strip down before he would let him in. This was not normal procedure. 
Brian suffered humiliation at the hand of this guard so that he could seek justice for his client. And Peter is saying, those who suffer for doing right demonstrate that sin is behind them. Not that they're no longer sinners, but that their primary pursuit is the way of Christ. Paul's teaching in Romans 6 helps us to understand Peter's perspective. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ has forgiven us. Our lives have been radically changed. The the moment we believe, we're dead to sin and we're alive to, to Jesus Christ. Even if we suffer for doing right, it just shows we're following Jesus. We're forgiven. Freed from carrying around the burden of sin. We're done with sin. And we're alive in Christ. Now, and forever. So we have a whole new attitude. Sin no longer holds us in its grip. God does. And so we aim our life toward what God wants. We do not live the rest of our earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Christ followers demonstrate God's strength even during turmoil. Peter writes to people who are facing suffering and hardship, and he reminds them, stay the course with God. Now, Peter supports this with a rather curious teaching. In verse 5, he notes that those who live recklessly will have to give account for their lives. And then he says this, For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Life might be challenging now. You may face hostilities because of your faith, but Peter points us to the end of all things. In the end, at the last judgment, everything will be sorted out. The wicked will will have to give an account for their behavior. And even though it seems that Christ followers have met the same end, death without any hope, it's simply not true. Christians have not lost the struggle. Rather, what Peter is saying is that Christians, now dead, have already received the power of God's good news preached to them in their lifetime. You might die like everyone else, but because of your belief in Jesus, you're alive by God's Spirit, alive in God's presence, even in death. This is Peter's way of saying that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, a whole new world has been ushered in. The end of all things is near, writes Peter. That doesn't mean the end of the world as we know it, that the world is about to collapse. No, Peter means that the renewal of the world that began with Jesus' death and resurrection is being carried forward by those who demonstrate that renewal in their lives of faith. If we are alive to Jesus in God's new world, then we will always be re-evaluating our lives. And Peter calls us to four things that matter 
as people of faith who are seeking to live in God's will. First, he says, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Be level-headed. Just because the end is near doesn't mean we run around like chicken little. I think one of the things that we've seen in the past week is those who used the occasion of protesting George Floyd's death as an occasion to riot and loot. Those who rioted had no intention whatsoever of being controlled by the situation. They simply wanted to cause chaos. Those who protested, who aimed to do what was right, had to be alert and of sober mind, no matter what the situation was around them. When our daughter Jessie played fast-pitch softball, there were times that a girl might botch a play. It's the kind of thing that can grip a team, and then they start to panic. And her coach would say, keep your head in the game. Peter's instruction in verse 7 is coach-like advice. Be heads up, he's saying. Take stock. Remember, God is in charge. Those with their heads in the game and eyes fixed on God live differently. Instead of panic, we'll pray. Instead of being derailed by sin, we'll pray. Instead of living only for ourselves, we'll pray. We'll pray that we have the right spirit to live God's will. We'll pray that hope and trust will bring us toward God's vision for us all. See, Peter gives us good advice. In baseball, it's to be heads up so that you can play. For Peter, it's be heads up so you can pray. Second, he says, love each other deeply. That is, love strenuously, especially fellow Christians. Love so deeply that your love just keeps going and going and going. Don't give up on anyone. Peter says we're to love above all. He says that because it's the trademark of the Christian community. Nothing, absolutely nothing, should prevent us from being devoted to each other. Because, says Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this doesn't mean we hide things up, hide, hide things from each other, things that we're not able to face with each other. See, he's not saying love covers up. No, what he's saying is we're invited to offer each other each day of our lives the kind of love that transforms the situation. This is a powerful word that Peter speaks to these dispersed Christians. See, they lived in communities which included Jews and Gentiles, and there was a nearly impassable gulf between these two. They were simply divided. Even though the Bible never approved of such a division, God blessed the Jews to be a blessing to all nations. But as John Stott once noted, the tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions that kept them apart. So they had nothing to do with each other. 
Right now, we're being asked whether we deeply love our black brothers and sisters. Many black Christians are calling other Christians to pay attention to the sin of racism. When a black believer says that black lives matter, it's a plea to recognize the pain that afflicts their lives. When you make that kind of request, you place yourself in a vulnerable position. Uh, To make a statement like Black Lives Matter is much like asking, do you love me? And how we respond tests the depths of our love. And it's not enough to counter by saying, all lives matter. Someone put it like this. If your spouse comes to you in pain and asks, do you love me? It may be true to answer, I love everyone. But in that moment, that's probably a hurtful and cruel thing to say. If a coworker comes to you in pain and says, my father just died, and a response of, everyone's parents die, would be true, but it's helpful. It's not helpful and, and cruel in the moment. When our black brothers and sisters speak up in obvious pain and hurt and say, black lives matter, to respond with, all lives matter, is true, but in the moment it might be hurtful and cruel. See, now is the time for us to ask ourselves, how do we show our black brothers and sisters in Christ that we love them deeply? I'm not saying this kind of love is easy. It's especially challenging to love those who are different from us. But deep love calls us out of our instinct for self-protection. C.S. Lewis once wrote about the power of love. To love it all, he says, is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one. Lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will not change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Third, says Peter, offer hospitality. Peter says this because traveling teachers and evangelists in the early church depended on the hospitality of others so that they would be able to do their mission. But there's more than just practical necessity at stake. What Peter's getting at is the fact that God has always wanted his people to be open. The Old Testament book of Leviticus says, Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember, you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I find that phrase highly ironic. Remember, you were once foreigners. You were once slaves in the land of Egypt. Remember every blessing that God has brought into your life and now make sure that others have the same blessing. Perhaps Peter would say to us, remember how God made a place for you in Ripon? Now, show hospitality to those among you who feel out of place. The truth is that word, hospitality, is based on a word that can refer to both host and guest. 
And perhaps we can best understand hospitality as a situation where two or more are together and we can't discern who's the host and who's the guest. Finally, Peter says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. God grants gifts to each Christ follower to serve the common good. God graces your life with something the church needs. Right now, in the absence of a worship director, we have a group of people who are stepping up to plan and to lead worship. And we give thanks to God for their gifts. Our church needs those gifts. Allow me once more from C.S. Lewis. God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. Creation seems to be delegation through and through. And I suppose that's because God is a giver. God gives gifts so that his church and the world will flourish. God gives gifts so that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. But more, Peter says, God gives gifts so that the church will be the center of an outbreak of praise. We've been called into God's service. Every word and work we produce is for God's glory. And when we use our gifts to serve others, God is praised. Whether we serve with our hands or our hearts, our mouths or our ears or our brains, God is praised. I mean, I'm overjoyed when people serve. I can't imagine the joy God must feel when someone says, I'm ready to serve. I'm excited to serve. Just show me where. Point me to the place where I can use what I have for God's purposes. Peter says, here's the real deal for Christians. You are dead to sin, alive to Christ. It's an essential attitude for living God's will. Our sins have been sunk to the depths. No fishing allowed. Now, in God's grace, our life leads to God's praise. We're heads up to pray ready to love deeply no matter what, always finding room in our lives for others, and serving with all that God has given us. We may suffer for doing God's will, but this is just further proof that we are serving Christ. To whom is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord our God, what a, what a remarkably, amazingly, astoundingly different situation you've placed us in our lives. Done with sin, alive 
to you. And how much we need uh, your spirit so that we can keep being alive in all of the ways that you want to direct our lives. To lead us to love deeply, to pray earnestly, to open up ourselves to others, to give with all that we have. Father, for all of your goodness to us, we give you all praise and honor and glory. For you are our strength. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.